Okay. Case three. Juji holds up a finger. Whenever he was questioned, Venerable Juji would hold up a finger. One time, one of the boys in the congregation was asked by an outsider, a visitor to the monastery, what is the essential teaching of Juji, your master? The boy also held up a finger. When Juji heard about this, he took a knife and cut off the boy's finger. As the boy ran out, howling in pain, Juji called him back. When the boy looked back, Juji held up a finger. The boy was abruptly, suddenly awakened. When Juji was about to die, he told his congregation, I got Tianlong's one-finger chan and have used it my whole life without exhausting it. As his word ended, he died. I will sit for five minutes. You want to time it, Kim? Sure.
I'm not sure everybody knows that um, if you have the book and you don't need the uh, page on the screen, uh, you can shrink it by moving the slider that's uh, right to the right of it over to the left. So make it smaller. You see there's a little, when you scroll over, there's a kind of a um, vertical line and then there's a little sort of thing you can grab in the middle of that line. You can make the page bigger or smaller as you need to. So maybe you need the print even bigger, um, but you can make that much, much smaller. So anyway, just a tiny technical thing. But if you have the book in front of you, you probably don't need what's on the screen. Okay, we need one more person to read the koan plus woman's comment. I have to go shortly. Can I read? Absolutely. All right. Let's have a look here. Read the read the koan again. Read the koan again and then the comment. Whenever he was questioned, venerable Juzi would hold up a finger. One time, one of the boys in the congregation was asked by an outsider, a visitor to the monastery, what is the essential teaching of Juzi, your master? The boy also held up a finger. When Juzi heard about this, he took a knife and cut off the boy's finger. As the boy ran out howling in pain, Juzi called him back. When the boy looked back, Juzi held up a finger. The boy was abruptly and suddenly awakened. When Juzi was about to die, he told his congregation, I got Tian Long's one finger chan and have used it my whole life without exhausting it. As his words ended, he died. Woman's comment. Juicy and the boy were not enlightened by the finger. If you can see into this, then Tianlong, Juicy, and the boy, and you yourself are all strung through on the same string. Juicy made a fool of old Tianlong, holding up the sharp blade alone to test the boy. Like the great spirit Julin, who lifts his hand effortlessly, and splits apart the great ridges of Mount Hua. Okay. <clears throat> so now we are going to um, sit for five minutes and then we're going to write for five minutes.
Okay, five minutes of writing. This ought to be good.
that cat has Buddha nature. <laughs> okay, so now we'll take turns reading the commentary from um, Guo Gu. I can't remember whether we read the koan again and the comment, comment again. Do we start from the beginning or do we start from Guo Gu's comment? You remember, remember Kim? I don't remember. I remember we start from the comment. Uh, from that's what I thought too. We we go from the comment. Okay. So, I think it's Barbara. One day I will die. So will you. The importance is how you die, how you have lived. So on the threshold of your death, it is worthwhile to reflect. Some people on the threshold of their death may not be able to reflect on anything, but if it is possible, it's worthwhile to reflect on these questions, either then or now. What have I done in this lifetime? How have, have I lived a blame-free life without regret? Am I at peace? I was looking up the website of the Western Chan Fellowship in England his guiding teacher, John Cook, also a disciple of my teacher, Chan Master Shang Yin, died in July of 2011. John's last Dharma talk, at least online, was given in May of that year. The title was something like, Just As It Is. He began the talk by commenting on the remarkable occurrence of life and all its wonders. In summer, there is heat. In autumn, leaves fall. This is followed by winter and snow, and spring comes again. He said that the point of practice is to examine oneself, the wonders of our own being, and the wonders of the world that we live in. It is truly remarkable and amazing that seasons change. Have you ever thought about that? We may have some scientific explanation for why seasons change but we could easily look at it another way, such as we grow old. How amazing. So there is birth. And since you have a body, you will get sick sooner or later. Some people are always sick. Some people are very healthy. And then they die all of a sudden, just like that. <coughs> Excuse me. There is eventual aging. We all get old. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Don't talk much these days. <laughs> um, okay, there is eventual aging, we all get old, and then there is death. All of these events are truly amazing. And in the process between birth and death, another amazing thing occurs. You get angry and jealous or you become arrogant. In life, there is also joy. Each moment presents you with different experiences. <coughs> because you see things differently, your world in turn becomes different. No matter how you shape the world that you have constructed through your experience or your knowledge, your life, whether miserable, happy, or joyful, is amazing 
truly amazing. Alan. Alan, you're muted. Sorry. The truth is that whatever you fabricate in your life, however you live it out, it's all good. I-A-G, as I say. Recognize it and be at peace. Don't make a thing out of it. To practice is to recognize this and to be able to return to the attitude of I-A-G, even amid disturbance, even when you are not at peace. Practicing in this way is to practice in accordance with Chan principle. Why? Because peace is your true nature. Why is it all good, IAG, even though obviously life has challenges and problems? When you encounter a problem or challenge that you can do something about, and you try your best to solve it, it's good. If you really can't fix it even after you've tried your best, then it's no longer your problem. It is only a problem when you see it as a problem and try to fix it. If you can't fix it, then it's no longer a problem. So it's still all good. Most of us don't live like this, however. We try to fix things that are not in our power to fix. We try to change people to accord with our views of things. We try, to, we try to fix the external world, not only when it is not our business to do so, but also when we don't even have the ability to do so. This is suffering. We make things our problem. Problems are not problems if you don't make them so. The issue is, have you tried your best? If you try your best, solutions will come. In Chinese, the ability to be at peace amid difficulties is anyang. An is to be- Gail, Gail, I think yeah. you need to be a little closer to the microphone. It's hard to hear you. Oh. I hope this is better. Much better. Okay. An is to be at peace. Jin is heart or mind. So An Jin means heart, mind at peace. That's really a test of your practice because all situations in life are opportunities. When you face problems, you make a thing out of them. And as a result, you will definitely be disturbed. Examine that disturbed heart, mind that is not at peace and ask, why am I not at peace? You may come up with all sorts of answers, but you must go deeper beyond the superficial layer of discursive thinking to your very existence amid the not knowing. Continue to ask, why am I not at peace? This becomes your life's guanyan, your huatu. I think it's Janie. You're muted. What 
course, this teaching does not imply that there are no objective problems in the world. We cannot deny that there are wars, criminality, and suffering. But in responding to them, trying to help to better the world, your heart must be at peace. If you cannot tap into this deep peace within, this true nature of yours, then you will inevitably create more problems. I have a question. Do you think that the, the work, our equanimity is the same thing as peace? Uh, I, I would say he's probably using them interchangeably. Okay. Um, all situations in life are opportunities that point to peace. Your practice is not to attain peace, but to recognize that all are already at peace. In peace, there's great activity. When you sit in meditation and you have many wandering thoughts, when you have drowsiness, when you have resentment, or feel this and that, know that all of these are manifestations of peace. Thoughts liberate themselves. They free themselves instant to instant to instant. If you get annoyed by wandering thoughts and discursive thinking, then you are adding fuel to the fire. But if your attitude is on zin, heart, mind, at peace, you'll be able to face them, totally accept them, not follow them, or try to get rid of them. Amid all of this, recognize this inherent peace, amazingly revealing itself instant by instant. Then, and only then, will difficulties be resolved in their own accord. Don't do it the other way around. Don't try to find some stagnant peace by devising a strategy to get rid of your thoughts. It was funny, just when I was thinking, what does this have to do with the koan? I uh, just read the line, wandering thoughts. <laughs> so we'll see. Were you annoyed by the wandering thought? <laughs> well, from the beginning of, of his, his, his essay, it seems like this is wandering thoughts as opposed to about the koan. So, does it to anyone else? Or? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> He's getting there. He's getting there. Okay. Like the preamble. Okay. The key to practice is to recognize the sheer remarkable amazement of all the manifold appearances, personalities, problems, and to be able to flow with them freely with, without attachment. The panoply of your life then becomes the Chan Hall. Practice is to realize <laughs> peace among, amid all activities. That's got to include having your finger cut off. Isn't that what you want, what you aspire to? Peace is the, great, the greatest blessing. 
In peace, there's freedom, liberation, activity. Health is unpredictable. Wealth, material goods, even more unpredictable. But peace is something you can do. It is actually choiceless <coughs> because it is your nature. It is how things are. So do not be fooled by the myriad fanciful phenomena of challenges and problems like Chan Master Juzhi's challenge to his boy disciple. If I were to comment bluntly about this case, I would say, IAG, it's all good. Sean Master Jinhua Shushi, 810 to 80, was a contemporary of some of the great Sean Masters of that time. For example, Master Lin Ji. His teacher was Hangzhou Tianlong, 770 to 850. Tianlong's teacher was Daimei Faisheng, 752 to 839, subject of case 30. Faisheng's teacher was Mazu Daiwei, 707-88. These are all important Shan luminaries in our lineage. Mazu is only two generations from the sixth uh, ancestral master, who in name six, uh, 638-713, who was the most important figure in Chan, is the is the attributed author of the platform spiritual often compared to in Mazu was also a great teacher a great master a great master in his time he said that in one of his intense retreats he was able to bring 18 or 20 practitioners to awakening it's quite a number what is even more impressive is that during his career as a Chan master, he had some 120 Dharma successors. This is probably the highest number of people known to have been awakened <coughs> under one Chan master. He is the progenitor of the Gongshu school of Chen that flourished in the Jiangxi region in Southeast China. Many of the Chan masters in the Gaelic barrier are directly or indirectly related to this line of Chen, Juzhi included. Juzhi taught in several different ways, but be, he became known later on because of his one particular method of teaching. He was called One Finger Juzhi. The text says that whenever he was questioned, whenever he taught, he would hold up a finger. The boy in the story here actually refers to a postulant. Traditionally, in a Chan monastery, there are many young boys, postulants. They were sometimes given to the monastery by local villagers who were too poor to educate their children. The parents knew their child would get a good education there and had no problem if the child later decided to disrobe and return to lay life. Sometimes when a Chan master wanted to find successors through a tally, he would choose young boys from the local village and train them. There would be an announcement made in the local village 
to the effect that the monastery was seeking a new acolyte or attendant novice. The villagers were asked if they wanted their son to become a monk. Names would be submitted on a tally for the prognostication ritual through which a candidate would be chosen. In fact, that's how my teacher, Master Shing Yin, was chosen among many other children. His family was very poor and he had a great number of siblings. His name kept coming up as the one to be the chosen to be a monastic through this ritual. The boy in the story is an attendant and acolyte ready to become a novice monk, probably Master Juzi's attendant. As Ju Shi's attendant, this boy must have already witnessed all of his teaching. Yes? I'm after Paul. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot about you, Peg. I'm so sorry. No problem. As Jushi's attendant, this boy must have already witnessed all of his teachings. Every time the master was asked the question, what is the meaning of Buddha Dharma? Or what is the essence of your teaching? He always raised a finger. So one time, some monks came to visit the monastery to seek Master Jushi's teachings. Since he was away, it was, of course, the acolyte, the attendant, who received the guests. Perhaps upon seeing that this young fellow was very bright, the visitors asked him, what is your master's teaching? The boy was a good imitator. He held up his finger. The guests were very impressed by it, and word got around. When Jushi came back to the monastery, he found out. Among the variations to the story, the more interesting one is not the one recorded here in the case, but one that goes like this. Jushi comes back and says, oh, we had some guests today? Yes, master. So what did they ask? The boy answered, they asked for the meaning of Buddha Dharma, and they asked for your style of teaching. How did you respond? The boy held up his finger. It was at that time that the master took out his knife and sliced it off. The boy was in such excruciating pain that he ran out of the room. He had been with the master for a long time. He was used to holding up his finger just like his teacher. So on his way out, Jushi asked the boy, what is the meaning of Buddha Dharma? Speak quickly. The boy tried to hold up his finger, except that his finger was gone. It was at that moment when the boy saw that his finger was missing that he became enlightened. Should I jump in and read next? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. The case also tells us that when Jushi was about to die on his deathbed, he still compassionately hoped that his students would understand what he was teaching. He urged them to practice. For that reason, although his disciples were all probably very familiar with his raised finger, he reminded them, I have used this finger inexhaustibly. He had learned this gesture from Chan Master Tialong and had used it all of his life without ever failing to demonstrate the truth of Chan. After he said those words, he died. <clears throat> There is a story behind how Juicy understood Tia Long's finger. Actually, the name Juicy 
did not mean anything unlike other Chan masters' names, which often come from a place. Zhuzi is actually a transliteration. He was given that name because prior to becoming awakened, he always recited a, a Dharamni, Dharami. a mantra of Kundi Bodhisattva, the transliteration of, of Kundi from the Sanskrit is Shushi. So he got his name because he always recited this mantra. Even during his solitary retreat practice in the mountain, which he did for many, many years, he recited this Dharani uh, on all occasions and at all times. Dharani and mantras are basically the same. Both are incantatory spells, except Dharani's are slightly longer. So Khandi Bodhisattva, like all Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, from the esoteric or tantric tradition, had his heart or core Dharani or mantra. Some people are aware only of the famous mantra of Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, Om Mani Padme Hum. But in fact, Kuni Bodhisattva is one of the 32 manifestations of Avalokiteshvara, and, and there is a special Dharani associated with this form. Juji practiced it fervently. It is customary for monastic or Chan practitioners to sojourn to different mountain sites to deepen their practice. One day when Juji was sitting right in the middle of, a hut, of his hut, a nun whose name was Shiji came barging in without introducing herself in her thatched straw hat and carrying her other belongings. She means actual or true. Ji means occasion or time. One can say that her name means true occasion or the occasion of reality, which is metaphorical. Shiji circled around him three times. This ritual of circumambulation three times clockwise dates back to the time of the Buddha, then stopped right in front of him. She said, if you can say something, I will take off my hat. She meant either you've got it or you don't. If you've got it, I'll study with you. If you don't, I'll leave, say something. That was basically what happened. Juji was dumbfounded. He did not know what to say. It is not that he didn't understand what she meant. Hers was a typical expression. She was very direct and cut to the chase. Chan practitioners are sometimes like that. As he remained dumbfounded, she circumambulated again three times. Afterward, she repeated what she had said. Say something, demonstrate your understanding. Either you have it or you don't. He just looked at her speechless. All Juzi knew was that Kundi Dharani, that's all he ever practiced during his whole monastic life. He felt great shame. He asked himself, is this Dharani all I have? What is the meaning of Buddha Dharma? Why am I in this robe? Why did I leave the household life, abandoning my friends and family to be a monk? I gave up everything, and that is all I have? The nun left. 
chased after her and said, it's getting late, at least stay overnight. He was in shame and perhaps felt he could learn something from her. She turned around and said, you've got it or you don't, say something. She was repeating herself. If you've got something to say, say it. If, if you say something, I will stay tonight. But he couldn't and felt even worse. She left and he started to pack up. He thought, solitary retreat, forget it. I need a teacher. I can't go on living like this. As he was packing, a mountain spirit or deity appeared to him and said, don't bother. In a few days, there will be a Chan master visiting here. Get a hold of him instead of wandering about, not knowing where you're going, looking for teachers. Just stay put. You may scorn the idea of mountain deities, but there are all kinds of sentient beings in this world. And just because you don't see them does not mean that they don't exist. When a teacher is present, there are always Dharma protectors nearby. Indeed, a few days later, Chan Master Tian Long came by. He was so famous that Juji recognized him right away. He prostrated. Then the first thing he did was to relate to Tian Long the whole episode with the nun. We can well imagine what had transpired during those few days and nights. He must have been restless, churning in his mind. Why can't I say something? What the nun was asking for, what, what the nun was asking was for him to say something about his realization of Buddha Dharma. What is Buddha Dharma? It's the job of monastics to know Buddha Dharma. They practice it, but what is it really? Heart mind was not at peace. He must have spent those sleepless nights wondering, what is the Buddha Dharma? What is the Buddha Dharma? What is the Buddha Dharma? Building up momentum until Chan Long arrived. In doing so, he made himself ripe for the latter's teaching. After hearing Juji pour out his story in great detail and his sincere questioning, I couldn't say a word to the nun. What is the Buddha Dharma? What is it? What is it? Master Qianlong just raised his finger. Juji became completely awakened. Janie. Do we not have Jess? No, uh, Janie is next. Okay. You're muted. Okay, sorry. Um, it is let's see. It is important to know that Juzi's intense questioning of what Buddha Dharma is was the key to his awakening. As a monastic, his task was to realize Buddha Dharma and share it with others. Yet he had not realized it and had nothing to show for his efforts. This internal struggle of not knowing what Buddha Dharma is was ultimate. Oops. Wait. Uh, was ultimately tied to his own sorry, uh, to his own existential dilemma of not knowing who he was. From the perspective of Chan, this is the profound sense of not knowing or of great doubt without which practice would not be effective. As a practitioner, there must be a point in which you infuse your practice with this fundamental existential dilemma. What is Buddha Dharma? What does it mean to be a practitioner? 
What is practice? How does it relate to my true nature? Peace, Anzin. Have you realized that Buddha Dharma poses questions such as, who are you? Are you your thoughts, your emotions? Are you the body? What is awakening? What is your full potential? At the threshold of your death, are you at peace? Have you lived a blameless life without regret? Buddha Dharma is not the words you're reading or the concepts you've learned. You must say something of your own rather than regurgitate the words from the scripture of others. Ang Long's finger jolted Juji to awakening. But he was, but was he awakened by the finger? Later, Juji became a Chan master and had his own community, a monastery. With everyone he met, he also raised the finger. <coughs> the issue here, however, as Lumen says, is that the finger is not why Juzi or the young boy got awakened. It could have been a big toe or a slap in the face, or it could have been some words. I would add that those practitioners who Juzi awakened also did not get awakened by his finger. All of these methods are just expedient means. Well, this is again a continuation of the whole issue of cause and effect, right? The finger didn't cause the awakening. The issue here is about being ripe to Bodhidharma. If you are ripe, everything is a shiji or true occasion for realization. Without that process of practice, being able to have your heart mind at peace, allowing IAG to come alive inside you, a person can raise a finger or a big toe, give a shout or a slap, but nothing will happen. If you, if you can understand that, then Tin and Lon, Jushi, the boy, and you are all strung through the same street meaning you will on walk hand in hand like what some buddies as you will on have experienced the same taste of the peace in awakening liberation in fact you on have fingers right whether you have short ones or long ones on ten or one missing there's no long or short no ups or down uh, no ups and downs no sorrow or grief no increase or decrease you like nothing. From the perspective of change, you already have peace. The practice is to recognize that and not increase problems where there's where there are not IAG. If you're the kind of person who likes to create problems for yourself and others, being caught up by your own ideas of who you are, of what the world should be, or of how the world has shaped you, just be at peace. Put it down. Everyone has baggage and stories about self and others. Sometimes you feel the most hurt by those who are closest to you, your siblings, your family, your friends. Don't react to life if, you, if your mind is disturbed. It's not, in the right, it's not the right time um, if you are vexed. 
as reacting will make it worse. Don't bring your baggage when meeting others. Facing all of life's challenges, its ups and downs, even the blames and accusations thrust upon you for things you didn't do, remain at peace. Not being at peace comes from attachment to self. It, you want to defend, to protect. I'm sorry, let me start that sentence over. You want to defend, to protect, to justify yourself? Is there a need? No, at least not for the sake of your practice. When the opportunity arises, things will resolve of their own accord. You have that finger. Your practice is to learn to use it. <clears throat> if you get caught up by the constructs that you create, that other people create about you, even those used by Chan masters as expedient means, they have tricks up their sleeves. Then you are a fool. Of all the ways you could respond to the world, why do you choose frustration or anger? You choose this because you want to defend something that is not there. You feel defensive because you're vexed. Vexation is, the, is for most people the master that is manipulating all of their actions, decisions, and views. Yet the truth is, vexations are guests. They're really not the master. Responding to life through vexations is like asking a thief to clean your home. It is also like someone who uses a stick to hit you. Do you get angry at the stick or do you get angry at the person? At the person, of course. All of those who are mean to you are not in control. They're under the influence of vexations. They are merely the stick held by vexations. If you want to be angry at something, be angry at the vexations, not at that innocent person who is under the control of vexations. Ju mm. Shi made a fool of old Tian Long, holding up the sharp blade alone to test the boy. Fool here simply means that he is actually in agreement with Tian Long. He was not fooled. When Chan masters mock someone or praise each other, it means just the opposite. In the West, when parents introduce their own child, they will say, my son is this and that. He is great. He has a college degree from such and such place, and so on. In the Chinese culture, when Chinese parents introduce their son, they will say, my no good son, he doesn't know how to do anything. This is a cultural difference. Don't get caught up with the cultural forms. For the Chinese, the greater the son is, the prouder they are of him. Yet they scold or belittle him all the more, especially in front of others. Like Confucius said, when the eagle soars high, it becomes a great target. It's better to be low key. In the verse, the words made a fool of old Tian Long tell us that he is really exemplifying Tian Long's great teaching by continuing the tradition as he lives out his life. And what does Jushi do? He awakens the boy, albeit at the expense of one finger. It is, of course, pretty dramatic. <laughs> 
Like the great spirit Hulan, who lifts his hand effortlessly and splits apart the great ridges of Mount Huan. The verse above goes back to Chinese mythology. From ancient times and even into the present, the Yellow River was continually changed, has continually changed routes in China. It is the second largest river in the country and probably the sixth largest river in the world. Legend has it that it is that in ancient times, <clears throat> this river was blocked by a great mountain, Mount Huan, which caused all kinds of floods. So this great spirit Hulan came down from the heaven and with one single stroke broke the mountain in two. As a result, the Yellow River was able to flow smoothly. Mount Huan, a Huan, split into two parts, one tall, the other smaller, like a camel with two humps. Like that great spirit, Juji continued his teacher's teaching, enlightening his disciples and all of those who came into contact with him, allowing their true nature to flow forth freely. This true nature that flows freely is the reality that in all situations and at all times, your heart-mind is at peace. If for some reason you stray from this, this truth, then ask yourself, why am I not at peace? Ask with everything that you've got, without discursive thinking, just with the sense of not knowing. Ask until you've realized that you, Juji, the boy, and indeed all the Buddhas are strung along the same string of life, here and now. Okay. So I'm curious uh, about what you uh, what you wrote and how your uh, sense of this koan and its commentary has uh, maybe changed from when you first read or heard the, the initial koan. I think five minutes is not very, a very long time to write, right? So. Well, um, I actually wrote exactly what Guru wrote. It's really surprising. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, you know, I read it and I was very confused. Um, I mean, now I'm I'm still a little con I'm still confused to be honest, but um, I was very confused. I thought this uh, Jizo person um had some problems you know i just kind of read it and uh i said boy so i wrote you know this guy's crazy with power well, you know he's cutting off a boy so i'm thinking this is a young person uh a young you know developing person and cut off his finger um and if i was that boy and some people came up would i not do the same thing would i understand like 
with my brain I've developed to kind of get these more deeper layers of whatever he's communicating. Um, and then this instant awakening, I was like, what is that about? Because um, now the boy's instantly awakened and fingers off and, you know, it was very, I didn't really, yeah, I didn't really understand the, um, I was like, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I was confused. And then I read this beautiful, you know, what we read together was lovely. Um, and I guess I'm a little, I'm still feeling kind of like Kim said earlier. I mean, it was such a lovely, everything that he wrote, I, I have lots of feelings about it um, and how that relates to the koan. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Especially the peace part. Especially the peace part, right? Yeah. I think I went down a little rabbit trail. Mm. I, and, I, and I don't know why I went there after just reading the, the initial part, but not but and. So where it took me with that, you know, context is so important. And I remember you, you're talk yesterday, Peg, and it made such a difference when you were talking about our last koan to know that teachers are held to such a tremendous standard. And so that was part of this becoming a fox. Um, and that bit of context, you know, completely changed that koan for me. And so comments are wonderful in this because it gives so much context, you know, I, I, in the in the short time we've been together, there's been so much insulting that I <laughs> now that I know that in China, that's sort of a backhanded compliment, um, or actually a, a straightforward compliment in a different way than we expected. But sort of the rabbit trail I, I went down, and I don't remember when or where I heard this, is was some um, some old master said. Um, now that I've lost my sight, I see everything. Now that I've lost my hearing, I, I hear it all. I can't wait to lose my body and see how much greater I'll be. And so that's the, the loss of the finger sort of took me down there, that path. And it wasn't a finger raised for me to notice or pause. It was more a, mm, don't, don't wait for words. Wait for no words. Um, don't see with your eyes uh, um, or speak with words, um, but but be in that place of not having eyes, of not of not seeing with eyes, not hearing with words, um, not using your mind to know, um, not limiting yourself in your experience of who you are and what is to your body, and then and then and then you might start knowing so um that's where i went so how lovely to have the commentary to have another place to go indeed that was so beautiful but i would just add one thing like your last line maybe that's the point to start not knowing right as opposed, as opposed yes. to knowing yes thank you kim thank you i was I was really 
struck, I had a sense when I was writing um, after the first part that the disciple, the postulant, the boy, thought he thought he could, thought he knew what the teaching was. He kind of did. And then, um, then I thought, ow, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but later, as we were reading the commentary, I was really struck by um, um, Jezim having the nun ask him what he knew, just to say something. What is it that he knew for sure? And just the amazement to me that he didn't try to come up with an answer. He actually knew he didn't know, and he couldn't say anything. He couldn't actually say anything. And um, I don't know, the two are somehow related. You know, it, 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 the two are somehow related. And it goes back to what I just heard. Um, uh, you know, the whole thing about not knowing is, is kind of where the, where the piece is. You're going to find the piece eventually or, you know, um, something. I, I don't know. I'm a little confused by it all, but I kind of was putting those two pieces together. Um, the teacher and the disciple and what his experience had been. And, and yeah, I mean, he, he sort of, you know, he got his, he, the movement where he became ripe was, like you said, uh, Gail, that he, it was the not knowing and, the, and, and sort of just, you know, waiting for this teacher to come, this teacher that was going to come in a few days. And the boy that's his attendant, you know, kind of showed that, oh, I know so well. <laughs> oh, and everybody's, you know, telling everything, wow, this, this, this boy, he knows it all. Like, he's really, and I, maybe that's the, um, the piece, is that there wasn't a, a not knowing. So then the finger um, comes off. It seems there's two versions of not knowing. Like, in the other story that he talks about, where the woman comes to him and wants to know the answer, he he's confused there. That's not the not knowing of not knowing. I mean, that's just like not knowing. I don't know how to say this, but there's two different. <laughs> but the finger was 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 truly like this can't be answered with words. It was that not knowing. Right. Well, Hershock talks about these. Um, these encounters and koans are often a uh, represent a communicative crisis mm -hmm. and i think that's a good way to think about it um, so shiji gave uh jushi a communicative crisis like speak say something about the buddha dharma what do you know this was a crisis for him and um and he had to provoke a crisis in the boy the boy thought he knew, right? Yeah. So, yeah, this is a, it's really interesting to me how much cutting there is in Zen, in, in <laughs> Koan. And it, it's, uh, it represents to me, it's not my pedagogical method, but I often think <laughs> those were fierce teachers. I mean, yeah. they would use anything. They would use anything to awaken their students. Um, and you'll see later when we get to Nanchuan cuts the cat, 
just this, um, this ferocity on behalf of the students that's a form of anyakampa, that's a form of care uh, of the teacher for the students. And I always think, I'm just too chicken, you know, I'm not a good teacher because I've just, you know, like, I'm not willing to cut people up in this way. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but, but in the service of awakening, it's, it's, it's always surprising to me how touched I am by the teacher's um, boldness in even violating a precept to bring that communicative crisis right there, right into that moment. It's uh, so fierce. Well, isn't that when, so, you, when you do the clackers and say this is a matter of life and death, it's, it's, it's that important? It's that important, yeah. And if you don't understand that, you're missing sort of, I mean, the, the um, you know, the Zen tradition is not a, a, a ride at Disneyland. It's really about life and death. And, um, and so this is the, the seriousness of it is often, um, demonstrated in these koans. So I had a um, Chinese graduate student who was also a Buddhist who was talking about the fact that nonviolence didn't come into Chan tradition until the Japanese. The Japanese introduced that. It's not in the original mm -hmm. Chinese tradition. So there's, you know, like, it starts with Wike cutting off his arm so that Bodhidharma would pay attention to him and teach him. Um, and so it's like, there's a long tradition of body parts being cut off and things being cut in half. And, um, and it's about this vivid quality, this, um, this life and death immediacy uh, that those Chan teachers were so steeped in. And I think it's hard to understand if you don't understand a culture where periodically in regular intervals, two thirds of the population would die from famine. You know, life and death is of great importance. So, Peg, you you don't see that as simple as only allegorical. The cutting. You think that it, there's historical evidence of that, or oh, are you wanting to call DC cultural propensity? I mean, I can understand the slapping and the you know, other stuff, but. I mean, I, I mean that it seems to me that it's it's a trope in these in these. There's always slapping or hitting with a stick. Or... But I really doubt it, and I'll tell you why. Because there continues to this day to be a tradition in Japan of people cutting off a finger when they join the Japanese mafia. To show their <laughs> it's a reflection of this koan. Didn't also um, one of. The... Uh, one of the sewing teachers, when she changed teachers, she cut off her finger. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's not well, unknown. There was two things I was that kind of struck me. One, if, well, I wrote exactly what Jess wrote. No, I'm just. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, before, uh, I'll tell you what I wrote before, but when I was reading the com, when we were talking about the commentary and Kim was mentioning the discussion around peace and how that was interesting. There was a sentence that caught my attention, which uh, it, it, it just seemed, it just seemed kind of interesting the way it was worded. And it was uh, peace is something you can do. Uh -huh. mm. um, and, and it's actually a choice because it's your nature, but this idea that you're, you're doing, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think 
the language or that we normally kind of culturally have, at least here in the West, is that you can like have peace or or receive right. peace or be and not do peace. It's so a being, not an activity. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting the way that yeah he worded that in the in the commentary. Yeah, it's Peg. You know, I'm I'm I I'm wondering all that stuff about peace and you know heart mind at peace that that big wind up before he actually gets into the Cohen. Don't you think that was purely editorial? I mean, that's not what the Cohen is really talking about. It's talking about an existential crisis in the life of these three people and our four people and that the way it, it's all that's transmitted, the teaching is transmitted, but there's nothing in this Cohen about being at peace, not in the face, not as a central theme of it. That's what you need to think about this week. Okay. Yeah, that's what you need to reflect about. What's he, the connection? So he wasn't at peace when the woman wanted to, to study with him. And he didn't know what to say. She challenged him. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's the not being at peace that is this huge driver to know the truth. And yeah, it just seems, um, I, I was struck by a sentence that he said, um, when you sit in meditation and you have wandering thoughts, when you have drowsiness, when you have resentment or feel this and that, know that all of these are manifestations of peace. I'm gonna be chewing on that one for a while. And they resolve themselves. Yeah. They liberate yeah. themselves. Yeah. And this is also, that's also a teaching in um, the Tibetan tradition that um, the, these so-called toxic emotions or um, hindrances uh, uh, actually are self-liberating. So to be present with them without any manipulation whatsoever, they liberate themselves. Right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Surprising, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you just got to sit with it and let it go go where it goes, I guess. Yeah, or cut off a finger, you know. It's going to work for you. I, I'm hoping less drastic measures are, are, are going to be more effective for you, but... When I, when I read the koan originally, when we read the koan originally before uh, the uh, Google's uh, commentary, uh -huh. and we're just like our own interpretation, our own thinking... Uh-huh. I mean, something different came up, <laughs> but, um, you know, what came up for me was, you know, for some reason I was thinking of this, um, this cutting off of delusions and, you know, this, the, the, the idea that you were, there, you were linked together. There was a string together and, and, uh, I, I took the, the cutting as not necessarily literally the finger, but as separating the, it's kind of like the the, the um, description of the finger pointing at the moon. Like you were removing the barrier to, it wasn't the finger, it was the moon that you were trying to figure out, but like somehow cutting off the finger allowed you to realize that um, it, it wasn't 
the thing that was the tool that the student was using that he thought was the tool was actually the barrier to what he was really trying to point to. So I kind of took it as, you know, cutting off of that delusion that the finger was the teaching as opposed to the teaching being the teaching. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was helpful, the second version that Guru told, oh, yeah. um, that seemed to uh, shed some light on it, you know, that, uh, that the boy tried to hold up a finger and there was nothing there. And that's when he really, you know, he was really struck by mm -hmm. this reality. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's not. When I when I did, am I off? When I when I uh, wrote uh, about it, uh, when I first wrote about it, I kind of, I think my writing was tracking along what what Eric was just saying. Uh, uh, the cutting off of the finger was so stark and visual to me that I thought of it in terms of. Uh, like a shiny object, you know how we talk about the shiny object um, uh, taking your attention away from what right. you should be. I, th I thought of it like that. And so I wasn't thinking that it was a literal cutting off of the finger, but more like trying to get the student to understand that's really not the point. You're, you're, you're focusing on the shiny object and that was the cutting off of the finger, which mm -hmm. caused, caused the student to now start thinking about or focusing on what is what is the what is the what is it really about? Yeah, but I, I certainly didn't 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 think it was going to be about all that was in the comments. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. These um, this you know these these are teaching stories. So they're not news items in the newspaper. They're teaching stories, and so the question is, you know, what is what's what's the teaching that's being conveyed. And I think this is, this is really, really interesting how, I mean, for me, I'm interested in how is this a teaching? What, what is, what is the teaching relationship? You know, I said, Anyakampo for students is not always gentle and sweet. You know, what a brave teacher to break a precept, to give a, a strong lesson. You know, it just is so uh, amazing to me that a teacher would go that far for for a student and then he calls him back then he that's calls really him. neat well that's what that that's what provokes the awakening not the cutting it's when he calls him he turns the boy turns around and tries to raise a finger and there's no finger there mm, nice. nice yeah well i'm obviously not a teacher in that way but uh, <laughs> we were talking earlier this is about life and death yes and and it makes um, sense to me and it's understandable to me, the harsh nature of the teacher teaching that. Because for me, the learning of this, it is that, it is that significant, that harsh yeah. learning, learning this practice. Yeah. It, I mean, would... learning, learning the truth is that significant and that harsh that I, I can see where that would be a way a teacher conveys the learning. Yeah, it's, um, it's that intense, I'd say, you know, it's that intense. So we don't use those methods at Appamata. There's, you know, lots of legal issues involved there. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, I have no appetite for the paperwork. Got my fingers. I got all my fingers. Everything. And, yeah, and, and we we can also look at it a little differently. At least I do. It's funny. I had this conversation earlier today with a friend about my spiritual practice, and sh and the question became, what would you be willing to give up, Nelda, to to arrive, whatever that means in your spiritual practice? My, the first word that came out of my mouth was everything, <laughs> everything, because I believe that giving up everything gets me everything. Does that make sense? So, yeah. Yeah, it's just this, um, this sense of everything's on the line. Everything matters. And so we, we need to take each moment that seriously, that, that intimately. And yeah. our uh, encounters with each other, I mean, uh, the communicative style in China is very different. So that accounts for part of, uh, you know, like, the confrontation between Shiji and Zushi, you know, like uh, she just boldly says to him, what can you say about Buddha Dharma? I mean, then we don't open a conversation that way, <laughs> typically, right? Um, but there's like a directness there and an immediacy there. Like there's not a moment to waste. There's no beating around the bush. There's not, hi, how are you? Or, um, you know, I've come a long way. Can I have a drink or anything? You know, it's just get right to the point. And I admire that about these stories. You know, it's very, uh, they're very direct. Of course, they're distilled. And he gives more narrative context when he gives the second story. So all that is compressed in the first version, all that background. Um, some of which, almost certainly, a Chinese person of that time would know. So... I, I really appreciate Guogu because he gives you that kind of uh, contextual background that you can't really get any other way. So it's useful. Yeah, it's so interesting to me um, playing with these, how our different perspectives and our different ways of approaching them, um, how beneficial it is to talk about that together. I mean, normally koan study isn't done this way, it's done quite individualistically. So it's, it's uh, wonderful to hear these different points of view and the different things that you saw in it and discover in it as, as we play with it. Yeah. There, we were going to talk about the next book or the, for August. Oh, the August, yeah. Yeah, because um, next week will be our last week with the koans. And then, uh, and then August, uh, you'll have a little detour and then we'll come back to the koans when I come back in September. So uh, so we had talked about a couple of possibilities, one of which is the, um, the uh, Gil Fronsdale book, The Steps to Liberation, which is about the Eightfold Path. Uh, so I, and I think it's very good and it's small, you know, like I think you could probably pretty easily get through it in a month. Um, it, the chapters are quite, um, Short. So that's I one. vote for that one. 
<laughs> for that one of the short chapters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, because I already have it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. Funny. That 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 was a. I think that's a really good. Um, that would be a really good choice. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what was the other one that we were thinking. The, the eight book, the, the book of the first teachings of the Buddha. Yeah, I think that I, I think people will get more out of the um, Fransdale book. Okay. Yeah, I think actually that will be more that will serve people better. And the other book is really early, early, early poems, and probably the earliest thing uh, of the Buddha's discourses um, in in poetry form. Now so, there's a lot of I haven't seen the book, but there's a lot of exercises. Ellen said. Yeah. In the steps to liberation. Yes, there are. Yeah. Yes. There are practices that you can practice in between. Yeah. So that seems like a good idea. And then and then people will have a resource they can go back to and um, and find useful, I think, since it's about these uh, eightfold path steps. So, What's the so would you would steps you, to you, liberation? The title of the steps to liberation? Yeah. So are you suggesting that, that we would do the exercises on our own between times or would we do it in? Well, while... I'm looking to see where I have my copy of it. Um, which I think. Ellen, do you have an idea about it? You've seen the book. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess in a way you, some of the exercises are, I've just begun the exercises and the one I'm on requires observation throughout the week. Yeah, he, these are for, the, these exercises are intended to be something you do during the week after you okay. read these chapters. So um, the whole thing is only, it's just barely a hundred, pages long, 97 pages long, 96 pages long. So I, I don't think you're going to have any trouble going through it. Um, but, but I think you should talk a little bit um, when you uh, come back together, if you've, what your experiences were with the practices. Okay. So, but I think, I think you should be able to easily get through it in, uh, in that. Let's see, hold on a second, what that's going to be. Um, There's five uh, five meetings. Yeah, they'll have five meetings. I should think you would be able to get through it pretty easily. Yeah, and I thought it was very good. I like his voice very much as a writer. And um, yeah. Could, um, did anybody find it who's already purchased it find it somewhere besides Amazon, or did you end up needing to go through Amazon? I didn't. I didn't see it at Book People just now. Uh, I bought it on Amazon. You got um, yeah, yeah, but it's ebook. Is there an ebook? Did you say? Yeah, it's ebook. Oh, good. Well, I'll get the ebook and then sh share it for people who don't want to get it. I I bought it on Amazon, but I bought a used copy. Okay, all right. That's the end of our time. But this is great. You know, I'm enjoying working with the koans this way. I hope you are too. 
Yes. Um, yes. It seems like a good way to work through this book, not just reading straight through, right? I didn't want to yeah. just rush through these koans. I thought we need to play with them a little bit. Mm -hmm. All right. See you next time. Thank you. Yeah. Have a wonderful week. Bye. I don't see you in be between, so take care. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Good night.